It's a pleasure to be here today to uh, share with you a few thoughts on Lester Perez Young. Perez, because he was uh, designated in the 1930s as president of the tenor saxophone. Sometimes that term Perez is spelled with an S. Sometimes it's spelled with a Z. Uh, we're trying to standardize that, but it's not working. The importance, you know, someone said something today which made me think about uh, what is the importance of this music for the uh, study of history, for example, which is uh, one of my passions. And I thought that uh, a few words from the book might help you understand the uh, importance of this music in not just African-American culture, but uh, American culture and uh, world culture as well. I didn't want to read this uh, anything, but uh, it, it, it has come to that. Failing to comprehend the relationship between art and belief, the public, most critics, and even some musicians fundamentally misinterpreted Young and viewed him and other black artists as enigmatic, Young himself explained that music played a singular role in his life, all the way, he said. But the profundity of jazz from the musician's standpoint has gone both unappreciated and unexplored. The saxophonist Eddie Bearfield and Bud Johnson shared Young's depth of feeling about the music. Like him, they knew they were very much a part of something that was bigger than any one or even all of them. This knowledge is a basic part of religion. And so when uh, people ask me about Lester Young, I always tell them, he's big. He's very big. And then with respect to the music, I tell them this music, you know, it's uh, very big. Uh, the longer you stick around, the more it becomes apparent to you. But to continue, as Eddie Bearfield, uh, a reedman, you might hear him, for example, on uh, Benny Moten's 1932 recording. He's often on clarinet on that. Uh, Moten Swing is one place. Uh, and, and he did some of the arrangements on that very famous 1932 recording. Eddie Bearfield played with just about every major swing band except for Duke Ellington. As Bearfield put it, whatever you're doing, this never leaves you. You're always thinking of it, of something that you might do with your instrument. It is a way of life. Once, when asked to join the Baha'i faith, Bearfield responded, I already have a religion, music. I don't have the time for the Baha'i, for anything. When I say music, I mean jazz music. Bud Johnson maintained that the future of the music was eternal and that its origins were primeval and lay in nature itself. Quote, music started out by the winds, the waterfalls falling, the grunts and groans of the different beasts and the birds that sing. So that's a brief passage that uh, gives you the importance of this music for at least two musicians who were of Lester Young's generation. And then today I received a letter that I thought I might share with you. 
uh, from someone in California, I'm sorry, in Oregon, our poet, goes like this. I'll just read a few lines, excerpts. I'll tell you, you won't find a more serious prez person than me. He has informed my life, my career, darn near since birth, 1938. So, of course, when my folks took me to the San Francisco World's Fair in 39, I was digging prez with Basie. And I consider him the greatest artist I've ever known. Don't get me started. I'd better keep moving on. Then he named some people who are in the footnotes. Had me in a classroom gig when he was teaching at the Manhattan School of Music. But some critics have their limitations, as you know. Last year when I was in L.A. for a minute, I was able to meet with Lee Young, that's Lester's brother, Lester's brother, at his home on such and such street. But we did chat over the phone. He told me about golf. I taught Ray Brown the game and his work with Nellie Lutcher and Nat King Cole. And I subsequently sent him a copy of... You just fight for your life, which he didn't have. That's another biography of Lester Young. I take it you're a bit younger than me. I grew up in West Fresno, sort of a KC West at the time. Casey's band leader Gene Coy became a resident, as did blues star Floyd Dixon, where the music was the lingua franca and prez was a household word. The music was functional, that's italicized, for say high school assemblies, Jumping with Symphony Sid, that's a composition uh, Lester Young popularized. And certainly parties. Later on, we danced the coal train, as it was always a necessity. Hard-earned hard coins went into jukeboxes. Dollars went to 78s. And my first LP was present Oscar, a 10-inch LP. Asian, black, Chicano, we used, needed the music. Thus, in March of 1955, when we were seniors, Berg's death reverberated on campus. I'm still learning from Prez. I only saw him once in Berkeley at a 56 Birdland Stars concert. He was featured with Basie and was sort of tottering. Bud was also on the bill, and he was led out by a white-coated attendant. It's Bud Powell. And since this is getting to be a longer 78, he refers to the letter initially as a 78. RPM uh, message, you might say. Since it's getting longer, I will close by referring to some new teachings by Prez that were not released at the time, perhaps because of their length, slightly over three minutes. Tracks 26 and 27, CD1 from Spirituals to Swing, Definitive 11182-2001. So I'll end it there. This is from... Uh, a person who uh, tells me that at the same time that Lester Young was in the uh, military and in the detention barracks in uh, Alabama, he, the writer of this letter, was in a barracks of sort in um, Arkansas near Greenville. It was uh, not detention barracks. Uh, it was not military barracks. It was for uh, the 110,000 or so Japanese Americans who were in turn. So when you realize the heritage of the person who writes this letter, that sends a message, I think, very loud and clear as to the importance of this individual, Lester Young, and the music, not only to this one person, but to that community in that uh, California town during the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, you're listening to Lester Young on clarinet now. 
or you were. Uh, 1938. Uh, he did some famous recordings on the Commodore, and uh, these were among the few recordings where he made, where he recorded on uh, clarinet. Once again in the 50s, he did it, but usually he played tenor sax. And I think the best way of proceeding is to tell you a little bit about the mythology concerning Lester Young and jazz, and then a little bit about my uh, thoughts in, in, in brief, because I can't you know, do justice to the complexity of the person. And then we uh, get to the reason why I'm here, you know, which is for the questions and answers, which is the part I, uh, I enjoy the most. So there's a great deal of mythology uh, that passes itself off as the history of jazz. Uh, you might refer to it as a popular culture motifs. And of course, much of it is incorrect. Uh, the fact that from time to time, writers, and I'm just one in a line of writers, uh, find evidence to dispute the history, uh, the official history, uh, does not seem to have any effect. You know? and, but that's the way that is. Uh, some people, they don't allow facts to clutter their beliefs or their interpretations. But let's take, as, as Lester Young would say, letter A. And I have to tell you, he had a way of talking which was all his own. Some would consider him an eccentric, and I would understand why they would think that way. But he had a way of talking. He did not give translations often, and so it was very difficult for people to, under, to uh, empathize with him, to understand him. So he was by and large limited, you might say, you might say limited, to a coterie of uh, people who really believed in him as a musician, if nothing else. Now, let's start with something very simple. A name, all right? The man's name in every textbook, every encyclopedia of jazz is Lester Willis Young. Lester, we don't know where that came from. Willis, it came from his father, a professor of music born in Louisiana, Thibodeau, Louisiana, outside New Orleans in March about 1871. Played all instruments, taught voices well, led bands. Lester was one of his prized pupils, as was his other son, Lee Young, as was his daughter, Irma Young. They were all musicians. The relationship between father and son is clarified, I think, when we realized that Lester's name was not Lester Willis Young, but Willis Lester Young. He was a junior. Lee Young said this in an interview in the early 1960s, but it had no effect. Uh, I discovered a document, a marriage certificate, a marriage record of Lester Young and Beatrice Tolbert when they wed in winter of 1930 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And that document says Willis Lester Young. Thenceforth, though, he was Lester Willis Young, as the 1937-38 Social Security record indicates. So now we got his name straight, which is very important if you want to do research on the individual in the census, for example. Now, 
He's known as Prez, president of the tenor saxophone, and everyone knows that Lady Day, Billie Holiday, gave him that name. But when I asked the Blue Devils, musicians such as Buster Smith in Dallas, Texas, what they called Lester Young when he played with the Oklahoma City Blue Devils, 32, 33, they said, we called him Prez. And someone else said, later on when he got to New York, uh, others saw everybody from the Blue Devils, like Walter Page, like uh, Henry Buster Smith and others, Abe Bowler, the bassist, calling him prayers. They began to call him prayers, which, of course, goes against what Billie Holiday has said, that she gave him the nickname. So, you know, as they say, you be the judge. There's another part of the uh, mythology that we can get to now, and that is that uh, Lester Young personifies a Kansas City style. Uh, I call most histories of jazz the, uh, well, they're, they're very linear and they go by decade usually. Uh, there's some prehistory in there and then there's New Orleans and then you go to Chicago and then uh, New York and Kansas City. Then they hopscotch out to California for the 50s and cool jazz after dealing with New York in the 40s and bebop. And that is certainly one way of looking at it, at it but it doesn't explain why the sequence occurs in the way that it does, nor does it really explain if bebop is something indeed independent and unique from swing, for example. But uh, that's all right. Lester Young is supposed to be a personification of Kansas City style, as was Count Basie, as was Andy Kirk, thought to be a personification of Kansas City music. Uh, Mary Lou Williams, a pianist with Andy Kirk, and a composer as well. Another personification of Kansas City jazz. Uh, she has a, there's a biography of Mary Lou Williams, recently published in paperback by UC Press. I recommend it highly. But Eddie Barefield maintained all this talk about Chicago jazz, Kansas City jazz, that's just a lot of nonsense, he says. These guys came from all over. They were all over. For example, Count Basie was from Red Bank, New Jersey. Mary Lou Williams was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andy Kirk was from Denver, Colorado, and Lester Prez Young was born in Woodville, Mississippi, spent his first 10 years in New Orleans, and then spent the next eight or nine years traveling around the country in various bands with his father. And then in 1926, he landed in Minneapolis with his family, that is his father, his stepmother, etc. And he more or less stayed there as a resident of Minneapolis until he got the call to join Count Basie's band in the winter of 1936. Now I ask you, what is a Kansas City musician doing residing in Minneapolis during the period 1926 to 1936? That is to say, you see it with, if, if birth is anything, if where a person is born is, is, means anything with Mary Lou Williams, with Andy Kirk, Cetera, other Kansas City musicians, four or five I just named, and there are others. If birth matters, then we're talking about something other than Kansas City style, something bigger than that. If you look at the Minneapolis City Directory for 1935, you find Lester Young listed at a specific address with his wife, Beatrice. He's not in the Kansas City directory until 1936 when he is again listed with his wife, Beatrice. And then he's not listed in the Kansas City directory anymore because 
Basie and the band went to New York City. So he spent very little time as a resident, a few months in 1936, spending more time, far more time, years in Minneapolis, and not to mention other cities, because he did barnstorm with various bands, Art Bronson's Bostonians in the late 20s, King Oliver in the early 30s, the Blue Devils, uh, Fletcher Henderson's band, Basie's band, uh, before it became the Basie Orchestra. So he did barnstorm, live in Kansas City, live in Oklahoma City, etc. But his headquarters, it seemed, was Minneapolis because that's where his wife lived. And that's what he regarded home, which I consider remarkable for someone who in every book you'll find that mentions Lester Young mentions him as a Kansas City musician. I've mentioned the Minneapolis residency. Oh, you might ask, well, why Minneapolis? Well, his family in the early, in the mid-20s were a part of the Great Migration, that mass movement of black folk from out of the deep south. They left the family homestead, you might say, after the grandmother died in November of 25. They waited a year, and then they went north. Nor are they the only youngs who went north. Uh, one of their descendants, whom I whose father I interviewed in uh, Raceland, which is outside New Orleans, he too migrated to uh, Minneapolis. He went there because he had other members of the family there. And that's why I think the young family went there in the 1920s. There were other members of the family who were there. Now, we know they're supposed to go to Chicago or at least Kansas City. But for reasons that are not altogether clear, they went to Minneapolis. And you can see that trend still going on in the uh, 1990s as far as a few individual family members are concerned. One of the reasons Young was a legendary figure was because he battled Coleman Hawkins in a competition in Kansas City in the winter of 33, I believe it was late 34, late 33, early 34. Mary Lou Williams is one who tells the story of this famous jam session in Kansas City. She told it in Melody, Melody Maker about 1953. That uh, all these local tenor men bid from Kansas City, Ben Webster, Dick Wilson, Lester Young, got on the bandstand versus the famous Coleman Hawkins and just blew them out of town. That he jumped into his Cadillac and ruined the engine racing to get to a gig with Henderson's band in uh, Kansas City. That's the myth. Now it's very interesting that if you look at the Chicago Defender six months later in June 1934 when you have the first mention of Lester Young in a newspaper, uh, first that I found, it makes no mention of a battle against Coleman Hawkins which is rather interesting if that's how he acquired his reputation just six months earlier. What, what is also interesting is the fact that in his autobiography, Count Basie says that he was there and he doesn't know anything about any competition of the kind that people describe. He said maybe things changed after he left or so, but all he saw was then he described what he saw, so he also contradicts the notion. Lester Young also tells the story differently. According to Lester Young, the famous New York band was in town, Fletcher Henderson and his all-stars, you might call them, and 
Coleman Hawkins wasn't there, so Fletcher Henderson came out and asked, can any of you tenor players sit in for Coleman Hawkins? So they pushed Prez to the front because he could read. Herschel Evans did not read as well as Lester Young, so Lester Young sat in that night, played Coleman Hawkins' part, sight unseen, and then he explains he had to run down the street to his own gig where there were 13 people in the audience. Now that is, without a doubt, a triumph of sorts but it's not a personal duel of any kind. So those are the facts, according to Count Basie and Lester Young himself. So you decide if uh, the uh, myth is only that, or if perhaps it's some story which has some meaning of the kind which people in literature are quite adept at uh, interpreting. That is to say, you know, there's a truth behind it, but it's, it's not to be taken literally, it's a metaphor. This, this happens. Uh, fine, not finally. Then we get to the uh, very sticky wicket of uh, Lester Young and uh, drugs. Because, you know, if you talk about jazz, you have to say something about drugs. Because if you don't, people will ask you about drugs. So, I saw a periodical bright moments at the Institute of Jazz Studies. There was a reminiscence by this writer who maintained that his father loved Lester Young and that his father was an alcoholic, but he had some things in common with the heroin addict Lester Young. And after reading that, I didn't want to read anymore, but it, you know, it was a very warm reminiscence dedicated to the man's father. But it also showed that even at this late date, despite biographies to the contrary, people can't get out of their mind that Lester Young was not a heroin addict. This person, I would suspect, has mixed up Lester Young with Charlie Yardberg Parker, whom we know was a heroin addict. Now, anybody who knew Lester Young knows he was scared to death of needles. He hated shots. He avoided doctors. He said when people would pull out a kit Hey, you've passed the prayers out. He says, once you've gone past a glass and a stick, you have passed the prayers. So he was not a heroin addict by any stretch of the imagination. Now, there were others who were heroin addicts at this time, as you well know, but Leslie Young was an alcoholic, as was Ben Webster, as was Don Bias, as was Coleman Hawkins. And the list goes on and on. And, uh, you know, this was an illness which was not properly understood at that time. But, uh, you know, in all honesty, he did drink a fifth of liquor every day for about 20 so years. And, you know, it's like smoking cigarettes, you know, that if you do that, you're going to live so long. Statisticians can calculate how many years you have. So he died at the age of 49 in New York City, followed a few months later by the death of Billie Holiday, who was a uh, heroin addict, but, uh, you know, which, which one of the line, which one of the Barrymores was the alcoholic, you know? I get them mixed up, but one of them we know was a uh, alcoholic, whichever, John. But, you know, I suspect that accounts of his life would not focus on alcoholism. Similarly, we know the medical profession is plagued by problems with addiction, but 
Rarely are these problems portrayed when they depict the lives of these people. So a little bit of uh, refocusing is certainly in order here. His relationship with Billie Holiday, according to the usual story, is one of romance. They were lovers. And uh, on the bandstand, said, they were extremely compatible, as only lovers could do, as well as admirers of each other's art. Well, the truth is that uh, they were not lovers by anybody's testimony, including Lester Young's. Uh, and all Billie Holiday said was, I think it was in Ebony, I fell for his horn, I nearly fell for him which doesn't exactly make them lovers. But uh, still, people like to think that. So, uh, Buck Clayton pointed out who she was going with at the time she was in the Basie Band. And uh, Lester Young told his niece, Martha, when Billie Holiday came by, that uh, they had not been lovers, or as he said, that they never did the nasty. That's the way he uh, referred to that. And since he was known for not lying, you know, he's kind of pathological about telling the truth is the best way to describe it in this new era. Uh, we have no reason to doubt him on this matter. Then we come to the question of the army and his decline, because usually they talk about the fact that the army and his um, incarceration was shattering to his personality. And after that, we see him in a spiral of decline as an artist and as, and as an individual. I would maintain, no, not me, Lewis Porter has in fact maintained in a uh, musical analysis of Lester Young that he did not decline after the military experience. He pointed out that Lester Young changed his playing twice, but one does not see a decline until the very end. Buck Clayton, trumpet player with uh, Count Basie and a friend of Lester Young, said much the same thing. He says, in fact, he played better after the military. So I think we have to take, uh, you, you take your choice. Uh, it's either Lewis Porter on the one hand, a scholar who's analyzed the music, or a friend of Lester Young's, Buck Clayton, they say much the same thing. I should take a minute or so to talk about the New Orleans genesis, because I think New Orleans is important for understanding Lester Young his musical conceptions, more so maybe than Kansas City, and his uh, reed playing, though, and others have pointed this out, such as Martin Williams, for example. He referred to the selection you heard earlier. It's one fine example of New Orleans tradition. But having said that, I'm not one of those who believes that uh, New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz. And I hope I don't, you know, dash any of your beliefs, but uh, James Weldon Johnson, a musician, diplomat, lawyer, songwriter, school teacher, poet, novelist, maintained in black Manhattan that he first heard jazz on the New York stage in 1905, and then he describes what he considered to be jazz. And musicians such as U.B. Blake and um, James V. Johnson and a host of others maintained they were playing jazz when they were coming up. They say they called it ragtime then. And then if you look at uh, the late 
Tom Stoddard's Jazz on the Barbary Coast, you see that jazz was very rich in California in the second decade of this century. It's a work that I recommend highly. Tom Stoddard, Jazz on the Barbary Coast. In fact, we know from the research of others that one of the three jazz bands was the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, original Dixieland Jazz Band, and then the original Creole Jazz Band, the, one of the big three of the early jazz bands was indeed formed of New Orleans musicians, but it formed not in New Orleans as a unit, but in Los Angeles. These musicians started trickling out to Los Angeles in the first decade of this century. By 1907, 1908, 1909, you see some of these artists there. By about 1911, they formed a jazz band, the original Creole band. And they toured about the United States, but they stayed in California for a time. And there were other jazz bands in California. We know this. Uh, readers of Pioneer Urbanites can read about uh, Reb Spikes and Sid Leprati. Now I ask you, were these individuals crazy for leaving New Orleans? No, I would suggest they knew what they were doing. They're intelligent human beings. There was an audience for their music in California. That is to say, the music was transportable. It was not limited to New Orleans in terms of its genesis or limited there in any other way. The word jazz was first used in a newspaper in a California publication in the context of a baseball training camp. And New Orleans musicians heard about the word jazz from musicians who had gone up to Chicago and who wrote back, they got this music called jazz, you can play it, come on up. So much for the New Orleans genesis. Now, I'm not saying that New Orleans is unimportant. Please don't misunderstand me, because I think of the music as urban, and we know that African Americans are primarily Southern. That's where the majority of African Americans have lived and still live, though in California it's kind of hard to grasp this reality. And as the largest city in the South, we can understand New Orleans might play a major role in the growth and development of new cultural movements such as jazz. But it's not the sole creator. So now we get to the complexity of the man and a few of my thoughts on this matter. Prez was, I maintain, I, I, I realized from the evidence that he was complex in many ways. First of all, he was country as well as urban as exemplified by his being born in Woodville, Mississippi, one of the most rural of states, and then spending his next 10 years or so in uh, New Orleans, the, most, the largest southern port city at this time. And then by looking at the evidence of residency, I discovered that it was very likely that he spent time in the country. His father was from Thibodeau. His mother was from Mississippi. His sister, Irma, was born in Thibodeau. His brother, Lee, was born in New York, in New Orleans, 1914, March 1914. We have his birth certificate tell us this. So you can see the progression of the family from Mississippi to Thibodeau to New Orleans by 1914. And then you find Lester in the census in 1920 way up the river near, I've forgotten what point, right across from Mississippi and Louisiana in some county where he's not even supposed to be. But the name is Lester Young in 
As, and uh, the people are related to him by blood, and they are named Young, but I haven't been able to connect them with any other members of the family. Also, you find Irma in a separate household in New Orleans in the 1920 census. She's not supposed to be there, but she's there. So the family was split up from time to time. Sometimes they sojourn in the countryside with relatives, which is understandable. So Lester was country as well as uh, urban. And you see this in his speech. You know, anybody who uses the word onlyest is, I would say, country. And he uses expressions such as, I reckon, and there's a passage or so there where I analyze his vocabulary to suggest that he was country. He was country also in the sense that, uh, as his sister Irma said, oh yeah, you know, Lester knew all about, you know, what you call that stuff, cross the rivers and all that, voodoo? Oh, Lester knew all about that. She said his mother was nearly poisoned uh, when she was young, before she married, and that she was very familiar with this uh, African-derived religious heritage. Lester, for example, believed in signs. For example, if a butterfly lit on his hand, that was a sign, he said. A telegram. It meant someone loved you, he said. And then he sent telegrams when he played. You know, he'd tell his lover, now this is just for you. I don't want you going up to the bar, clicking your drinks or anything like that, talking to your girlfriend. This is just for you. I want your full attention. Lester received telegrams, and Lester also sent telegrams. Now, there's another thing I can tell you, a detail, which is very interesting. He liked to use the word pound cake for people that he liked. He called Eddie Durham pound cake, or something that he liked. And those of you familiar with New Orleans know that pound cake is used for conjuring, as some would say. And at one point, Lester called his saxophone pound cake. So it was, interestingly, curiously, something he conjured with, something he used to bring about change. So there's this complexity to Lester, which is fascinating. Lester is a reservoir of the African-American oral tradition, not only in his playing, because as he says, if you can't play blues, you know, you can't play shit. But uh, in his storytelling, for example, Lester was a storyteller. Now this part of it doesn't come out in the interviews, but people like Zoot Sims said Lester held court. That was the expression John Zoot Sims uh, used. Now writers tell you he's enigmatic. He's not very communicative. He's shy, but the musicians who were close to him said he was a sweetheart. Someone described him as a big, lovable, huggable teddy bear. He was a storyteller and he was funny. Lester could be funny, but not ho, 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 ha, ha, ha. No, no, no. Witty funny. Witty funny. You know, he'd be flying across the United States. He'd look out the window and say to his partner sitting next to him, you know, you think there'd be enough room here for all of us? And when the poet, um, Allen Ginsberg, went to see Lester Young at the five spot in the room back there, they, what do they call it? The 
little room where they sit sometimes, you know, it's probably next to the bath, plumbing, next to some plumbing. So uh, he came, Ginsburg came and fell down on his knees before Leslie Young and said, Priest, what would you do if we had 30 minutes before atomic warfare atomized the United States? Lester said, well, I don't care. I'd still kick in the window of Tiffany's and get me some jewels. <laughs> Which I find very, very funny. And even funnier, he said, what are you doing on your knees? <laughs> so you find he's a repositor. He's a receptacle, you might say, a transmitter of uh, the African-American oral tradition, not only in terms of music, but in the role that he plays as a kind of griot. Then Lester, and here I'm getting more into, you know, what I got out of this, what I could see. Lester thought of himself as a trooper, a real trooper. You know, kind of like the Canadian Royal Mounted, what do they call them? Mounties, you know. Kind of like the mailman, he was a trooper. In fact, they said, Lester wasn't one of those musicians that you had to worry about getting to the gig. In fact, if he had any problems, it was getting to the gig too early. He might be there an hour before the gig and he'd sit in back, kind of wait, because his father had taught him that being punctual was a part of musicianship. So in that way, you know, his behavior was contrary to what you might want to think about him. He was a trooper. He was uh, traveling as a musician from the age of 10, first as a drummer, then as a reedman. And he tells the story of how his father put him out the band because he wasn't reading at about the age of 12 or 13. He was just copying his sister and his father beat him and humiliated him and told him he couldn't come back into the band till he uh, learned how to read. So Lester said, well, I cried my teardrops. And then he learned how to read. And he said soon he was back in the band and teaching others how to read. But this was a crystal moment in his life. And we know that because he tells it every time. By the way, something very, very similar happened to a number of other musicians, including um, uh, Louis Jordan, because his father was a professor of music. And Louis, as a youngster, thought he would clown on the bandstand. And his father gave him a lesson which kept him from uh, clowning in that way, at least in his father's band. He was a trooper during the territorial years in the late 1920s and late 19, in the early 30s when these musicians, as he said, nearly starved to death purveying their art. He was a trooper with Henderson. He sat in with Henderson's band. They liked him, or at least Henderson did. He was given the call to join Henderson, but the other musicians in the sax session, section ostracized Lester because he didn't play like Coleman Hawkins, and they forced him to leave the Fletcher Henderson band. So in addition to this great competition with Coleman Hawkins, there is this story about Lester being forced to leave the Henderson band, but he persevered nonetheless, and he kept the tone which Easterners did not like by the 1940s, everybody tried to adopt Lester Young's style. And then with Basie in the late 30s, they were troopers struggling down south, struggling on the circuit up north. 
And it wasn't until about 1939 or so that they began to make it big. And then when he went into the military, that was another event through which he suffered mightily several months in detention barracks. And then in the 1950s, the man is sick and knows he's sick. He's been told that uh, he's only got a few years to live, but still he insists on uh, when he's well booking gigs and making those gigs. So that's what I learned about Lester Young. Coming from a very religious family, his grandfather donated to the uh, local church, helped found the church. His grandmother was a missionary. His uh, aunt sang in the church. She married the local minister in Thibodeau. And the father played in the church and had him in church all the time. So Lester was steeped in AME religious tradition. And I can't help but think that he saw himself as a kind of suffering pilgrim in this world, trying to keep alive this little light known as jazz in the midst of this barbarous nation. Barbarous if you're an African-American, barbarous if you're a purveyor of a black art form. So Lester is, to my way of thinking, a trooper slash pilgrim slash missionary. There's a spiritual dimension to Lester Young. Uh, Sadiq Hakim, the author of uh, the composer of Jumping with Sith Symphony Sid, maintained that for him, Lester Young was a kind of spiritual leader. More important than Andy Young. More important than Thurgood Marshall, he said, because he brought, he brought black people and white people together. I thought, damn, I ain't seen this in no books. What am I going to make of this? And then others, such as Irving Ashby, the guitarist, said, I worshipped him. I said, that's a pretty strong word, Mr. Ashby. He said, if there was a stronger word, I would use it. And others revered the man in the way that we sometimes revere someone that we have the greatest respect for. And Neil Leonard has pointed out that there's a great deal in blues, jazz, or jazz that reminds us of uh, religion. He has a book on this subject. Neil Leonard, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, probably emeritus, jazz and myth, jazz and religion, something such as that. Uh, I recommend it highly. And I've written about this Lester Young as spiritual leader in... Um, an uh, oral history review. You might ask, now, how could someone who drinks a fifth of alcoholic every day and smokes marijuana whenever he has it, like Louis Armstrong, uh, how could he be a spiritual leader? And I said, well, you know, Lester Young understood that these things are very, very complicated. Or as the ministers say, the churches weren't built for the saints. The churches don't need saints. You can't save saints. The church needs sinners. You can only help sinners. So, you know, you have to see this kind of contradiction in things. Lester Young saw this contradiction through in things because he was country and urban. One of his favorite drinks was top and bottom, port wine and gin. You know, uh, Billie Holiday loved that, too. It kind of harmonized them up. And then one last thing. So there's this quasi-spiritual, for lack of a better word, dimension to this phenomenon of Lester Young that I think has to be appreciated. And it's not my idea, it comes from others. I... Then there's the, and you know, I can say more about that if it's necessary. Then finally we get to the uh, fact that uh, Lester Young was a giant. Now I have to tell you, when I started this, I didn't know how important Lester Young was. 
I didn't listen to Lester Young. I didn't even particularly like the music of Lester Young. That's what attracted it to me. It was unfamiliar. It was different. It was historical. But I, I certainly didn't know how big he was or uh, how difficult it would be to try to encapsulate his life in so many pages. But... Uh, you know, people know who Charlie Parker was, but they don't know that without Bird, without Lester, there would be no Bird. That's the way the line of progression, if you believe in such things, that's the way it goes. And this is well known to the Bird fans. He came right out of Lester Young, and Lester Young was influenced by Henry Buster Smith of Dallas, Texas. I asked Mr. Smith, Did, uh, was Lester Young influenced by you? He said, well, he said he was, which I take as testimony to the fact that the two of them agreed on this matter of Lester Young being influenced by Buster Smith, whom some refer to as the, the spearhead of what became known as bebop. I don't know of anyone who had a greater influence on literature. The uh, beat movement, as it was known, saw people like Lester Young and Bird as saints, or at least Heroes. Now, there is this story that Jack Kerouac, while he was a student perhaps at Columbia, Horace Grant, rode in a taxi with Lester Young from one place in Manhattan to another place in Manhattan, and Lester turned him on literally. And as one of the people in the audience said, uh, when I was asked about this, oh, that's irrelevant, that's irrelevant. And I said, you know, you're probably right, because, you know, we focus on the substance and miss the reality. That is to say, Lester Young turned on a movement, the beat movement. Not just Jack Kerouac, but uh, Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and Ted Jones, who wrote a poem to Lester, and a host of other individuals, because they tried to write like Lester and Charlie Parker played. And if you read the literature of the beats, you see this. And I think, my goodness, what about this? A whole literary movement shaped by black art form, jazz. And they tried to write as people talked. Some said, that's Kerouac's writing, you know, isn't really writing. It's uh, typing. But uh, I suspect that he'll be remembered and that critic will be forgotten. So he's great not only in music, but in American culture, to wit, literature, and then in other ways, too, that I can go into if you, if you wish. Uh, but he also stands out as a rebel. And one of the members of the family pointed out he was a rebel. And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, oh, of course, now I understand. Because I recognize that in order for a man to be a rebel, he has to be a good boy. And Lester was a good boy. He didn't lie, he didn't cheat, he didn't steal or anything like that. He grew up within the church, and then he changed. And he became a rebel, drinking a fifth of scotch every day, uh, etc. And uh, though he didn't resist the draft, he didn't think like that, he found a way of staying out of a military unit, if not out of the military itself. He was a uh, rebel. He adhered to his own way of playing, even though he was supposed to play like Coleman Hawkins. And even though no one else played like him at that time, he stuck through it. So he stands out to me as an important figure in uh, 
American culture as a, as a, not only as a spiritual leader of sorts, but as a uh, rebel who made contributions to music, speech, style in general. Uh, the part I like is the question so uh, perfectly. I know I've spoken a little long and you've been very patient. I appreciate that. But uh, I love the questions. Don't make it too hard. As Dizzy once said, somebody was, said, well, let's play something. He said, don't make it too hard. No. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. There are two kinds of writings in jazz. There are those which are uh, kind of like prayer said, you know, he said. Yeah. And then there are those that are based upon a, you know, kind of scientific review of the evidence. So, so I haven't seen any which look at the evidence in a satisfactory fashion and come to that conclusion. And I've hypothesized that the relationship between the two was more like brother and sister because Lester was very, 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 very close to his sister, according to Lester's son, Lester Jr. Uh, when he went to New York, she moved there a few years later, for example, in the 1950s. But we have trouble seeing a, this brother-sister kind of relationship amongst jazz people. But one of the things that I stress in the chapters on the combos of Lester Young, on the Basie band, on the territorial bands, is that they're like brothers. It's a community. It's a society. Uh, they say again and again, these music, we was like brothers, you know. And, you know, if you struggle together and live together, it's kind of like a military outfit, you know. You never forget the members of your outfit. Kind of like an elite group, you know. Once, there's an expression which gave me the title of book, Once a Blue Devil. The expression being once a blue devil, always a blue devil. Being a blue devil bonded them forever. So those kinds of relationships are to me much more interesting than, are much more interesting than the other kinds, which, you know, happen as they do everywhere else. But I don't think they should be a primary concern. Another question? Yes. That's one reason to play the saxophone to the side. Uh, and, yeah, but the question then is, uh, did the other saxophonists in that same sax section play the saxophone to the side? It's more likely that uh, growing up the way he did in vaudeville units, carnival minstrel bands, that uh, he learned how to do different things when he played the saxophone. They said he used to skate a dance. I'm not sure what that looked. And he used to Charleston when playing the saxophone as a youngster. So do the Charleston uh, when he played the saxophone as a youngster. And then musicians in this era used to do all kinds of things with their instruments because uh, popular culture was a little bit of jazz, a little bit of the circus, a little bit of the freak show, you know. Uh, musicians used to sit on the piano and take their brass instruments apart and play them that way, etc. So I suspect that his uh, playing the horn out to the side was kind of holdover from his vaudeville days. And also, I think it's suggestive of dance. He was an excellent dancer, one of the few people in the family, his brother said, who could really jitterball. So it was something like that. What's interesting is how many musicians began to imitate him 
like this. We're like this. Now, someone told me, I don't remember who, that Dexter Gordon, who admired Perez so much, he used to stand in a mirror when he was young to, so he would mimic his hero, got more and more like Perez as he got older in his speech, in the way he sounded, in his playing, and what he did with his horn. So uh, a number of other musicians adopted that habit, too. It was like his trademark, like the pork pie was his trademark. You know, some people, have a, some artists, have a greater impact than others. We just, we don't really understand this. I'm not talking about Elvis Presley's and stuff, necessarily, but those who aren't in the limelight. Those are the ones who sometimes have quite an impact. When Armstrong came to join Henderson's band in their mid-twenties, they laughed at him. Hit from New Orleans with these policemen's shoes. And they say, and I don't know if we can corroborate this, that after they heard him play, a lot of New York musicians began to wear policemen's shoes. That's how that works sometimes. Uh, Chano Pozo from Cuba spoke very little English, a lot of Spanish. Joined Gillespie's band. After a period of time, everybody in the band spoke English like Chano. How do you explain that? Uh, you had your hand up, Alice, huh? Said you, uh, you, you kind of made a reference before. Uh, I seemed to question whether bebop was something uh, distinctive. Yes. Uh, or not. Yes. And, 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 and you could explain that a little bit. Sure, I got this idea from uh, uh, the late bassist, Red Calendar, George Red Calendar, who maintained that uh, maybe this difference is a little exaggerated or something like that. And uh, others have written about this. If you look at the bands of the big swing bands of the 30s, many of them have little bands in them. Like, for example, a Benny Goodman band had a quartet in it. And Count Basie's band had a, a quintet, septet, septet, cetera, in it. All the bands had a little band within them. And in these little bands, they worked out new ideas. The big bands, they just orchestrated these ideas. Because with that many people, you'd better have written arrangements or you'd have to have some top-notch musicians who put a lot of time in it. You had to have written arrangements, play just what's on the paper. But even, you know, and then in uh, compositions, you hear the seeds of bebop in... Um, for example, Eddie Durham, trombonist, guitarist, pioneer guitar, has this composition, wham, bam, rebop, bam, something like that. And it's just a popular swing thing with some lady singing, you know, it's not particularly memorable. But in one part of it, near the end, the trumpets get together and they go, bit, bit it, bit, bit it, and then they go, dee, 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 dee. And then bit bit it bit did it and then you realize that's salt peanuts. And Eddie Durham tells the story how Dizzy heard that. He said, I like that. Can I borrow it? Eddie Durham said, Sure, you can borrow it. And so we got salt peanuts out of that. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. So in the compositions themselves of the 30s, you can hear Bebop. Uh, in, in the playing of Charlie Christian, who played with a swing band, you hear all these differences. It's not like zebras and giraffe and elephants, you know, you're talking about things which are much more closely linked.
first part is less interesting to me, and I think less interesting in general, and the second part isn't too interesting either, I'm afraid. Um, well, having done Pioneer Urbanites, I wanted to do something on jazz, and I didn't want to do a biography, I say that, and uh, take it for what it's worth, and it kind of fell into my lap. I, I uh, knew the value of oral history, so I started writing and interviewing musicians when I was back east, and I went to Buck Clayton, and he taught at Hunter's College, and because of that, I suspect he was familiar with people like me, comfortable. So I went over, I interviewed him, and he told me some important things. Lester was funny. No one had told me that. Funny. I said, what do you mean? He explained that. Lester's father was a, a professor. What? He explained that. Lester played better after the military. But you really should talk to Lester Young Jr. I said, yeah. Now, about the funny. So, uh, he said, you really should. Uh, I'll give you his phone number. I said, okay. So I called him. And I knew Lester Young Jr. was younger than me. So I figured he didn't know that much. His father was 11 or 12 when he died. But I kept those thoughts to myself and I did not act on the basis of these thoughts. You know, it's all a question of, well, what do you know, you know? What do you know? What do you really know? And I didn't believe the things I read anyway, and still have trouble believing things I read. You know, it's just one of those life problems. So I went to see him, and uh, he's a professor. He's a has a doctorate in education, had an office in his home, and he listened to me. I don't know what I said. You know, I could probably recapitulate what I'd like to think I said, but not much, not much, you know, not too much. Um, he said, you know, what's been written about my father isn't true. Much of it isn't true, he said. It's just, you know, he told some stories which, you know, were written up. He said they weren't true. He said, if you really want to know about him, you should talk to these people. And he named them, Eddie Bearfield, Sadiq Hakeem, Connie Kay, Jesse Drakes. So I said, yeah, okay, uh, would you tell him I'm going to call him? Tell him I'm going to call him now. You know? I didn't want to call him dead, you know, just out of the blue, because it's hard enough. So I think I wrote them, but I'm not sure. But I know I called them and I interviewed them. And they were very cooperative. So he probably said something to pave my way. He also told me I should talk to his uncle out in California. And his aunt out in California. I thought, you know, what am I doing in New York? So I did, eventually. He said, it's going to be hard to get to Lee. Just keep trying. And I did. I was able to bring him to campus once, to my class. Uh, he's going to celebrate his 87th birthday, 88th birthday, uh, next week. Uh, early next week. So I interviewed him once, and then many years later I interviewed him again. He didn't remember the first one. He says, all right, you know. <laughs> you go, <"Shh." laughs> Because you don't want to make an impression. As I tell people, you're not there to give, you're there to get. You're like a thief. You know, or a junk man, sort of, you know. So, uh, and it just grew. And uh, fortunately, I didn't know what I was getting into. Oh, the second part. Don't follow this road. 